Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. Today, I'll be chatting with cellist Mike Block whose path through a seemingly typical music education has led to a decidedly atypical music career. A longtime member of Yo-Yo Ma's Silk Road Ensemble, Mike has performed with a diverse collection of musicians, ranging from Edgar Meyer to Will I Am, and he's on the faculty at the Berklee College of Music and New England Conservatory of Music. In this month's conversation, you'll hear Mike describe some of the key experiences that helped him discover his unique musical identity and how an early career failure taught him that no matter how well he may be doing in his career, it's totally okay to struggle with new things that he might be interested in learning. We also explore what the creative and technical aspects of his practice have evolved to look like over the years, and why he'll definitely be making a stop in one of the White House bathrooms if he's ever invited there. Your name kept coming up in conversations with different musicians and friends. And, and I think maybe the first thing that I stumbled across online was that video of you with the parking lot song. And then that led to Bach in the bathroom and then the cellist trap and so forth. So needless to say, it's not like the typical range of things that one usually discovers when you Google classical musicians online. And sort of thinking about unconventional paths, a lot of times when we look back at 10 or 20 years of our paths, it it makes sense, right? We can kind of see the steps and the narrative, but in the moment, things are often a lot more uncertain and ambiguous. And at least for most folks, there's a lot of anxiety and doubt and second guessing thrown in. So I'm curious as to whether that was a case for you as well, or or did your journey actually, as you've crafted it, kind of make sense for you as you were going through it? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I graduated from Juilliard and, and had a, you know, a focused classical background, but it was even during school that I was kind of feeling antsy and unsettled and really kind of searching for a way to feel different when I, when I played music. And so, um, you know, I was starting to experiment with various non-classical styles and improv improvising and composing. And, and, um, and so I think there's just this kind of like restlessness artistically where I just, I had such a clear idea of what made me unhappy 
that it really motivated me to search for other things and other experiences that maybe I hoped would, would help me, you know, feel more of the way that I, I imagined I could feel as a musician. And, you know, everybody's different, but, uh, uh, for me, it was like I just was really searching for, you know, the feeling of creativity and of freedom and, and really feeling like I could make strong creative decisions like all the composers that I had been kind of taught to kind of idolize over all these years. I was always kind of like I had this kind of deflated feeling of kind of idolizing all of these brilliant musicians and composers, but then not actually trying to do what they were doing. And as far as like actually creating music. And so I was very much full of self-doubt uh, every step of the way. And I think what's it's funny that you found the parking lot song first because it's just a silly song. Um, and uh, and I think one of the things that I latched on to, you know, creatively was singing and playing cello because I think it allowed me to have interacting musical voices that I could kind of you know, choreographed to my own, uh, own interest. And so it felt like that, that was something kind of complete that I could offer in performance all by myself. And so, uh, that's kind of what I was pursuing. But, but the only problem was, is that I was uh, a horrible singer. <laughs> and so kind of in those early stages, my, uh, my compensation was to make songs that were funny because I knew I couldn't really sing in any sort of emotive or expressive way. So, so that was kind of the, uh, a big phase for me that kind of helped me get more comfortable with being creative, even singing, even when I was not a confident singer. And so I think there's been, you know, other instances like that where, you know, every big breakthrough that one might experience often is kind of built on, the willingness to make a fool out of yourself in public many, many times. <laughs> Do you remember what the first tiny little step in that direction was? I mean, was it, because I don't know what your experience at CAM was in terms of, was composition part of the curriculum or, or did you yeah. just sort of seek it out? Or Yeah, um, I mean, both of my degrees are in cello performance. I think I was always jealous of those who were pursuing composition degrees. But I wasn't getting any formal training outside of maybe a music theory class. But I can tell you, actually, the, the first glimpse of the creative process that uh, I held on to was uh, in a summer camp right before my senior year of high school. I was actually attending Interlochen, and I was auditioning for, like, you know, the concerto competition probably or some, something. I was preparing a Haydn D cello concerto, and the teacher I had that summer uh, – uh, was great, and I've gotten to know her now as like a, an adult, uh, Melissa Kraut. She's now on faculty at CIM, coincidentally. But somehow, I don't know what spark she noticed, but she she managed to encourage me to write my own cadenza. That was a really important experience for me. Not that it was a great cadenza, but just the fact that a teacher asked me to do it was all I needed, and I just like really enjoyed working on it. And then the, the the second breakthrough is, you know, I'd started improvising and composing a little bit just on my own through college and kind of on the side. And and then I, when I got to Juilliard, my like my first semester there, the the cello faculty there, they all have strong connections to the new music world, and they had such a brilliant idea to create a marathon concert where every cellist in the school was asked to play a contemporary solo cello piece. And it was this really cool event that, like, every studio was involved in. 
And again, I, you know, my teachers at the time were Joel Krosnick and Derek Atkins. And I think Derek was aware that I was playing in rock bands and doing some other things in New York. And he had the foresight to simply say, like I was telling him, I don't know what to play for this concert. And, and he, again, just kind of casually said, well, why don't you just write something? And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll write something. Uh, and so I ended up writing like a four movement suite that was, again, really a, a groundbreaking feeling for me to feel like like the creativity that I had been experiencing in rock bands and, and other stuff that I was essentially joining through Craigslist. This was a way for me to connect it to cello and not feel like it was like this separate thing, but like my primary activity of cello and of studying at Juilliard it could be connected to all of these other creative interests I had. And so I think that was very helpful for me. I imagine that most students, when you're doing your master's at Juilliard, even if you have had some experience writing your own thing and performing it, might be a little bit apprehensive about playing it in front of peers and colleagues and so forth. I mean, did that happen for you? Or did you, did you just sort of already care so much about the opportunity to be creative that it didn't matter so much what others might think about what they heard? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I'm sensing a theme to your questions and like, you know, this, this, the, the idea that there's social hurdles to overcome in as far as like revealing, you know, something like that. I think, I think at the time I was just really craving a different musical identity that actually I was more excited to play something of my own and feel like I could present that as my musical identity. And I probably would have been more nervous if I was just playing a piece that everybody else already knew and maybe being judged on a on a more linear aspect of like, am I playing it correctly or am I playing it well? Or, you know, I, I think what I appreciated about writing my own stuff and sharing it is that it felt like I it didn't matter if if there were mistakes in the same way, because the focus was about sharing, sharing something and everybody was going to hear it for the first time. And I think just being aware of, of that kind of mental space of the audience actually helped me where it's not like they all know that there's a really hard shift in bar 32 and they wonder what fingering I'm going to use. Like that kind of level of insider listening is more stressful to me than, than doing something that nobody's ever heard and feeling like I can focus on just creating a good audience experience. Well, it's interesting because yeah, you kind of are on to me. Um, one of my one of my favorite quotes is the you know E. Cummings quote, and I'm going to get it slightly wrong, but essentially it's something like it takes courage to grow up and become who you are. And, yeah. And it sounds like in your case, if I'm sort of hearing it correctly, that a, a big part of that was just the frustration at. I mean, you used a lot of interesting words like feeling antsy and wanted to have a, a different feeling or different experience when performing or this restlessness and wanting to be creative. And, and it sounds like the frustration of not being able to do that things in, in the way that you had sort of been trained classically made it much more painful to, to try to continue to kind of put this round peg in a square hole or, or something like that, but instead kind of create this new thing that just felt more like you. Yeah, for sure. So did that help with maybe insulating you a little bit from experiments that you that you took that didn't maybe pan out quite the way that you might have hoped because you, you'd alluded to lots of i don't know if you used the word failures or or, or something sure. like that but you know things that just didn't work out along the way and i think a lot of times it's easy for us to not see the it's sort of like facebook right like you see everybody's best kind of curated moments as opposed to all the awful forgettable things in between yeah i mean uh i've definitely 
done horrible things in performance <laughs> and even things that maybe I was really excited about at the time, but then would cringe at, you know, thinking about it later. I can actually, uh, there was again, an early experience for me that I think was, was formative as far as like failure goes, because uh, right after I graduated Juilliard, like it's kind of this double edged sword, I think, cause I, I was, I, w I got early professional opportunities that I should should never have gotten or would never have gotten if I had essentially done what my teachers told me to do. Uh, and so because I was, you know, trying to be creative, I, I did find myself getting to work with Silk Road Ensemble at an early age. Uh, and so I remember, like, just about a month after I graduated Juilliard, we were playing with Yo-Yo and Silk Road Ensemble at Millennium Park in Chicago. And it was like, you know, this sold out thing for like probably like 12,000 people. And I just graduated and I'm having this amazing experience to sit next to Yo-Yo on this stage. And I'm like, you know, fresh to graduate. I'm like, oh, if, if this is what professional life is like, I am like so on board. Like, this is great. Like, of course, this is where I should be a month after graduating. It, it all made so much sense at the time. But... A week later to the day, like the concert in Millennium Park was like a Thursday. And like the very next week, I was actually, I had enrolled to be a student at a jazz camp. And so I was learning to play jazz. And, and essentially as a cellist, they kind of give you the walking baseline boot camp because uh, especially if you're around violinists, um, cellists are often playing in a complemental role in that sense. And I was trying to walk baselines behind this violinist. And he was just yelling at me on stage in front of the audience. He's like, don't drag, don't drag. Now you're rushing, don't rush. And I was just being berated on stage for not being able to do this. And of course I had paid for that experience as a student, but it was a week, literally a week later after I had had like the greatest professional event that I had experienced so far. And, you know, essentially it just, it really hammered into me like that, you know, everything I might be interested in, deserves work and you know has its own path and if i'm good at one thing it doesn't mean i have you know a blanket right to just play anything and that it kind of even though i was now a professional and outside of school i just really felt how i wanted to keep working at things and keep getting better at things that were new newer to me and so essentially i just haven't stopped at this point i still feel like there's a list of things i wish i was better at and i'm still working on and so I think ultimately that, that process, you know, if I'm willing to do something in public that's new to me, then I have to kind of give myself license to not necessarily be at my best. How do you draw that line, actually? Because I think there's a tendency to want things to be perfect before putting it out in the world. But, you know, perfect never really happens. And then, then you're just in your garage or your basement or your practice room doing something that may or may not resonate at the end of the day anyway. Like, do, you, do you have kind of a process for figuring out when do I put it out in the world or when do I hold back? I think these days I'm, I'm actually maybe more, uh, much more selective than I might have been in the past. I think I'm appreciating like what's worth putting on stage and asking people to pay for versus maybe what I might just do for my own benefit. Uh, and kind of separating the two, so I'm not, I'm not going out on a big stage and, and maybe doing something that's not ready. But I think when I was younger, which is a painful sentence to utter out loud, I think that uh, the mindset I had was I was going to take every opportunity to learn that I could, 
And if I was hired for a band that I wasn't ready for, then that's a great opportunity to learn. And if I'm the wrong person for the gig, then it's the band leader's fault for hiring me. Uh, I kind of like deflected. Like I basically, I never said no to something because I didn't think I was ready. I was like, well, if they're asking me, I'm going to see how far I can rise to the occasion. And so, you know, again, maybe maybe I'm I'm a little more sensitive now to like what what the audience experiences and making sure that I'm putting that first. But I think as I was learning a lot. I was just embracing things as learning experiences for myself. I wonder if that relates at all to, I'm going to read a quote back to you that that's attributed to you and, and hopefully it's, it's accurate. But uh, you said something like when you were a young artist, being busy was half the battle, but now the battle for you is actually being less busy so that you have more time to do the creative work that you want. Do you remember saying something along those lines? Sure. Yeah. 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 I wonder if you could say more about that. Cause that's, now that I read it, I don't know that I've ever heard anyone articulate it that way, but that makes a lot of sense, right? Because when you're younger, like you just want to be able to pay the electricity bill and not get kicked out of your apartment and, and like just do more and more and more. But then at some point, it can probably feel like you're just on this treadmill and you're not sure how to get off and do the things that you really care about. Yeah, I, I've definitely felt that feeling that you're talking about. And um, I used to, I was living in New York for six years after graduation and uh, you know, the local freelancing is so active and you could, I feel like all of the, the good freelancers have three gigs a day and you're just kind of like jumping around the city. And then eventually I started getting touring gigs versus local gigs. And then you could line up tour after tour and never be home if you really wanted to. But ultimately, you know, if you're able to, you know, as, as your career goes, hopefully you can get paid more per gig and, and maybe not need to work every night in order to eat, you know, that kind of idea. But I think it all goes back to like the whole reason I, I started down the path was like, I didn't, I didn't start playing multiple styles so that I could have more gigs. I did it because there's like this deep need inside of me. And so realizing that you can still be unhappy and like maybe I personally was not cut out for an orchestra life, but uh, it didn't mean like that any jazz gig was like going to make me happy or any folk gig was going to make me happy. And, and so I realized that there's nuances to everything and that I wanted to find the people I really enjoyed working with and the, and the roles in a band that really satisfied me. So yeah, I think for me, it's like, I've always wanted to feel like every every moment at work is the place I want to be. Like, I never want to be working on music and wishing I was somewhere else. And so finding the, the, the outlets where I can I can say that to myself, that this is exactly where I want to be, I think that's always kind of inside of me. Which, which um, unfortunately means I'm unhappy in a lot of places. And, uh, and so I've had, you know, I've, I've, left a lot of groups over the years uh you know even though there's people that i really care about and loved love being around like i still i've had very various phases professionally where i've kind of you know had to say goodbye to certain situations even though maybe they were all my friends you know it sounds like that must make sense on paper but but be kind of a, a difficult emotional thing to do yeah i think Sometimes like there's various groups I've played in the past where they're still together and then I see them on Facebook as you say and it's like, Oh, they're all still having a great time with that with, with with each other, but I'm the only one not there or something like that. And so, you know, it's like there's there's a lot of kind of 
sad things that I've had to give up. But then again, it's like everything you give up leaves an open space for something new to happen. And of course, it's like, you know, that endless cycle of, of being open to a new experience is for me something that I really enjoy. I have a friend who, um, I don't know if he came up with this or he read it somewhere, but he kind of operates and has tried to get me to operate under the, uh, like the hell yes principle, mm. which is basically, you know, if an opportunity comes up or you're doing something and when you think about doing it internally, you feel like a, you know, hell yes, let's do this. Then you do it. But if it's anything other than that, you, oh, know, I you don't do it as a way of kind of discerning between the things that you're really feeling pulled to and the things that you feel maybe obligated to, or you should do, but aren't really kind of fully aligned with, with what interests you. So it sounds a little bit like that's the, yeah, I like that a lot. Yeah. I mean, because of my background, there's any number of gigs that I'm qualified to do and that I could do. You know, I could audition for orchestras. I could play in a string quartet. I I could do wedding gigs every day of my life if I wanted. But so realizing that what I'm able to do and what I want to do might not be the same thing. And even more painfully, realizing that what I do want to do is not something that I can do yet. Like, you know, that's a big part of what I'm constantly thinking about. And and I think something that I often tell students is that, like, you know, it's so much work to be a musician. Like, we've sacrificed so much to do what we do since childhood, right? We're practicing, and the instrument's expensive, and the school is inexpensive. And, and you know, especially as, like, you know, a young artist, you're essentially a small business owner, and you're kind of doing email potentially more than you're even practicing. And so essentially I realized that if I'm going to be working – like lawyer hours, but not making lawyer money, then I better love it. And so kind of not getting caught up in the work for its own sake, but making sure that it's like that uh, the satisfaction is, is worth the energy is, is always kind of at the forefront of my awareness. I like that, the, the lawyer thing. That's a really good decision rule. Uh, well, actually, that kind of makes me wonder about practicing. I have a couple questions about practicing in the yeah. sense that and maybe this is just an assumption on my part but i'd imagine that a normal day for practice for you now looks different than it would have if you were practicing or preparing for auditions competitions juries and so forth back in college and high school sure. so one I'm, I'm curious as to whether how you feel about practicing has changed over the years in the sense that, again, maybe you always loved practicing. You were a total like a practice nerd from the time you were five or whenever you started, but, but maybe not. And I wondered if, did you enjoy practicing as a kid? Has that changed over the years? And, and mostly I think I'm curious about how practicing looks now relative to how it might have when you were in a more kind of conventional place with music. Um, I remember distinctly lying to my parents for most of my childhood about how much I was practicing. I, in a way, I wish I had practiced as much as I said I did, because that probably would have been very helpful. But I don't think the fire was lit in me until like junior year of high school. I actually got a new cello teacher and started contemplating what it meant to audition for college and, and what it would mean to pursue professionally. So it wasn't until like the last year and a half of, of high school that I would start to practice in a serious way. And I mean like, you know, multiple hours, like, you know, two to four hours a day. And then in college, I was more than happy to like take on all of the infinite list of things to work on from my teacher, Richard Aaron. And I remember freshman year of college, you know, practicing anywhere from four to seven hours a day, 
like that was, I remember, I think I set my record once, it was eight hours and 20 minutes, and it was totally unsustainable, and I wasn't happy, but I was going for it, you know, because that's like, that was the atmosphere that we were in at the time in that school. But essentially, like, I think what I've really appreciated about various non-classical styles, uh, and, and working on improvisation specifically, but also just any creative pursuit is practicing is less about, like, um, I think sometimes I think of the classical practice method as like an actor who, you know, has a script and they, they have to decide, well, what is my interpretation of this script? And because there's so much technique involved in classical music, we're often using a practice to kind of nail down our specific interpretation that we might repeat the same way every time. And that mindset is valid in that setting. But I think what I really enjoy with improvisation or, or other creative styles is that the practicing becomes more exploratory and instead of figuring out the one way I want to play something and work on repeating it precisely practicing is more about well what I want to figure out every way that I could possibly play over these chord changes or I want to figure out every possible you know feel for this groove or whatever and so and the idea then is that when push comes to shove in performance, you can be spontaneous and you can actually make a split decision and do something that actually you have already practiced, but maybe not have decided that you were going to play. And so uh, the exploratory approach to practicing, I really enjoy. And I think it's changed the way I would play classical music even still. I think for me, the danger of the technical focus of my classical training was that I was becoming very self-conscious and that uh, a lot of these creative styles helped me tap into like more instincts and kind of use, use your body and your musical instincts to rely on more in a way that as when I was playing cl just classical music, like I would never have thought to rely on instincts because like how can you make a decision uh, ahead of time and practice that shift if, if you're looking for instinct or something so it's kind of that's maybe part of what we started talking about which is like this different feeling i can have when playing different styles and different styles bring out different parts of my personality i feel or or they get they have more of an outlet and so that's one of the reasons i enjoy staying kind of in multiple styles so that i can kind of explore these different ways of feeling does technical practice look different now than it used to? I mean, do you still do scales and, or yeah. use different kinds of scales or different emphasis or? Well, yeah, I mean, I still enjoy long tones and playing slowly. I still find really centering, but specifically with scales, the, the scale routine that I'll give my students at New England Conservatory of Berkeley is built on the same technical principles that I had in classical training, which is, you know, doing things with a metronome and a tuner and at different speeds and, you know, doing maybe whole notes, half notes, quarters, eighths, triplets, sixteenths. The difference is like the classical scale routines that I was always taught is you go from the bottom of the scale to the top of the scale and then you come back down. And essentially you practice the scale the same way every single time. And so uh, that has a lot of benefits. You, you get used to moving up the fingerboard you're working on shifting and obviously intonation and, and tone, but practicing this scale in the same order doesn't help prepare you for improvisation or other spontaneous 
things. And so essentially now my scale exercise is completely improvised. And so I'll still do like whole notes in D major, but I'll improvise whole notes instead of playing just first, second, third, fourth scale degree in the same order every time. And then as I go faster to half notes, quarters, eighths, triplets, sixteenths, suddenly like the end of my scale routine is I'm improvising sixteenth notes all in D major, but totally free. Uh, and so just as an example, you know, how does it look different? Like it's like I'm trying to take the technical principles that I appreciate from the classical pedagogy, but finding ways to combine it with still thinking creatively and spontaneously in a way that helps me outside of just classical music. So by improvising, you mean instead of playing the notes in order, you know, D, E, F sharp, and so forth, you play them out of order, but in the same hand position? Uh, I mean, you can think of it in different boxes. Sometimes I'll improvise 16th notes in D major all in third position for like three minutes. Or, or sometimes maybe I'd improvise just on one string for a few minutes. Or sometimes it's just free, and I'm just like, yeah, my the box I'm in is the world of D major, and I can play anything in D major. So internally, like I might be thinking about my hand shape, or I might be thinking about shifting, or all sorts of things. But uh, if you were to listen to me practice, it might just sound somewhat random. Did you ever coach with Toby Apple, actually, when you were at Juilliard? I don't think I ever did get a coach with him. I liked him a lot, though. He led the lower strings class, okay. and uh, and yeah. Because he said something once that reminds me of what you're describing. He said once that he doesn't practice what he's going to do on stage so much as he practices all the things that he might do on stage. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's exactly the same philosophy, yeah. Right. Which which actually is a form of what in motor learning literature is called variable practice, which actually seems to lead to more flexibility, which then translates into more consistency on stage than just trying to do the same thing over and over like you described. Yeah. Which seems no, kind of counterintuitive, but but makes sense yeah. when you think about it. Um, I think you're hitting on something that has has actually totally defined the way I approach practicing and, and what I try and pass on to students. Because you, you use that phrase variable practice. I don't actually, I don't know that terminology, but now I feel like there's probably all sorts of dissertations on it that would validate it. But there's this one story that I really love, and maybe maybe it's from something that you're already more aware of, but it's the ball in the bucket test. And this is, again, it kind of is the summation of everything we're saying, where there was a test, a study where they took like 10 people uh, and they they were tested on how well accurate, how accurate they could throw a ball in a bucket four feet away. And they were given like three days to practice and they were just, you know, throwing the ball in the bucket four feet away. And at the end of the three days, they were going to be tested by their percentage of how well they could throw the ball in the bucket four feet away. Well, then they had a second group of 10 people who at the end of the three days were also going to be tested if the, how well they could throw the ball in the bucket four feet away. But for the three days leading up to the test, they only threw balls in buckets that were three feet and five feet away. So they actually never threw a ball into a four-foot bucket until the test. And then lo and behold, they actually did better because they were not practicing to throw a ball in a bucket four feet away. They were practicing to be intentional about how far they threw the ball. And that's what helped them do better. And, and that's how I think about practicing as well. Well, I like that word intentional, because it sounds like if you're practicing in this way, it's much harder to just practice on autopilot and just right. kind of put the repetitions yep. in, which might have 
defined practice more typically, I think, uh, for most of us in, in our early years, we don't really know what we're doing. We just only know to do repetitions of the same thing without even really paying attention. Do you have like a sense of, you know, if someone's starting to feel like they want to explore more creative outlets, I mean, do you have recommendations as to, oh, this is where you should start? Or is it not so concrete as far as where to start? Um, yeah, it's both. I think what's great about the world we live in, and specifically for string players, is there's so many resources, actually, to learn things outside of your background. And so I think that was the other thing I appreciated about starting to go to fiddle camps and jazz camp and Scottish camp and Arabic music camp is like, I think coming from classical music, I kind of had this idea that if I was going to learn anything, I had to get a degree in it. And I didn't. And then I started to appreciate like, oh, I could just go to like a one week camp and that might actually change my life or at the very least change my year. And so I think looking for short-term educational opportunities that interest you is actually very easy. And there's a lot of options, both specific and multi-style, you know, like, and so I run a camp in Florida that's happening for the 10th year. And I also run the global musician workshop for a silk road ensemble. And essentially going to these week long camps truly changed my life after graduation. And so I definitely believe in the power of these experiences, but you know, the, the nature of those camps is that they're often maybe style specific or, or, or whatnot. And so figuring out what inspires you can take some time to explore. And, you know, sometimes classical musicians often think that playing non-classical music, it means playing jazz or that if they want to learn to improvise, it means they have to learn jazz. And, and for whatever reason, that's just an image that classical musicians often have. And obviously that's not true. You can improvise in bluegrass, you can improvise in rock and roll, you can improvise in hip hop. And there's all sorts of opportunities to find those outlets. And so I think what I often tell people, you know, if they want to start learning to play music by ear, one of the things that can be most helpful is I tell people like, whatever you already like to listen to, start there. You know, if you love the Beatles, start learning Beatles songs. If you love, Ariana Grande, start learning Ariana Grande songs or whatever you listen to for leisure. I think that was a big part of it for me as well as in, and I think a lot of, like I, I would see it in school where what the music I was working on professionally, I occasionally felt that it was too removed from the music that I listened to just for leisure. Like I would work all day on Beethoven sonatas and then I'd go home to my dorm and like blast Eminem, you know, of course. It's like, well, well like for whatever reason, it always felt like I wanted to connect the, the music I listened to for leisure with the music I'm doing professionally. And I think that can be a good starting place where, you know, you can start to do things that you already love with your instrument. You don't necessarily have to like learn jazz. If you've never listened to jazz, why in the world would you want to learn it? And so starting with something that you already love, I think is probably the best place to start from. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't we, want to connect what we listen to for fun more with the things that we play professionally yeah. or study. That might be a, a great place to kind of wrap up, but I, I do have one sort of random question. So you've been doing this Bach in the bathroom thing for some time. Yeah. And do you have like a, a bathroom bucket list maybe, or like it's, <laughs> does this sort of happen spontaneously or do you have like a, like a, a list of places where you really want to play in their bathrooms? 
Uh, I feel like for your uninitiated listener, I need to give some context to this. <laughs> but yeah, so I play cello, and I and I have this strap that I stand when I play cello. And so, um, I, uh, essentially, I, I when I was practicing at home and in, in my apartment a number of years ago, I would I would end up just walking around my apartment as I was practicing, and inevitably would repeatedly end up in the bathroom playing Bach because it sounded like a little church in there. So anyway, it kind of inspired this series. So whenever I'm in a nice concert hall, I'll find a bathroom and, and take a video of myself playing a movement of Bach in the bathroom. And so, yeah, so if I had to choose some bucket list bathrooms, uh, obviously Carnegie Hall. Uh, I haven't done that uh, a bathroom there yet. Yeah, I mean, just the famous halls are fun. I mean, so so the series is that uh, I'm recording all of the Bach cello suites in the bathrooms of the finest concert halls. That's that's the the premise of the series. So there's obviously any number of concert halls that I, I still haven't played since the series started. But of course, there's probably like some fun to, like if you know, if I ever get invited to the White House, like I'm gonna <laughs> bath, you know, it's like why not? But yeah, it's a fun little thing just for me to like when I'm on tour, you know. It's again just finding some sort of outlet where I feel like I can do something for myself, even when I'm on tour with with somebody else's group. Yeah. Does that mean like you put a sign on the outside of the door to make sure you're not interrupted, or like have you ever had problems with people walking in? Or? That's such a good question because I'm pretty sure the whole premise of the series is definitively illegal because uh, I'm going into bathrooms with video cameras. Um, <laughs> So that's not a good thing. But uh, the vast majority of the bathrooms are like backstage. So dressing room bathrooms, uh, obviously you can usually lock or are by definition private. And uh, occasionally I've done like lobby bathrooms, but it's, it's usually like during sound check on like a, during a piece that I'm not in. And so the building is still locked and it's not open to the public. But, you know, maybe once or twice a staff person has, like, actually come in and interrupted me, and it's slightly awkward, and I just kind of apologize and leave immediately. But, uh, yeah, I, I have to be careful about when and where I do it to make sure that I'm not, like, setting myself up for, for jail time here. <laughs> Mike, thank you again for taking the time to, to chat. For a full transcript of this episode, plus links to random interesting things that came up in conversation as well as resources like practice hacks and the audition cheat sheet. Please visit bulletproofmusician.com slash blog. And to find out when Mike will be performing near you or to apply to study with him at one of his upcoming summer spring camps, please visit mikeblockmusic.com. That's M-I-K-E-B-L-O-C-K music.com.